Hey, good afternoon, everyone. One day I heard a, a woman give a story. And she um, was sitting in the pew with her son. And uh, her son, the preacher came up to the pulpit every, like every Sunday, and her son uh, leaned over to his mom and says, Mom, what does it mean? And the preacher loosens his uh, collar so he could you know, What does it mean? And she says, well, he needs more freedom. He doesn't want to be choked to death when he's preaching. And then she, uh, he says, well, what does it mean when he takes out his handkerchief and puts it on the pulpit? She says, well, that's for when he's sweating to wipe his brow so sweat doesn't get into his eyes. And he says, well, what does it mean when the preacher takes off his wristwatch and puts it on the pulpit? And she says, it means absolutely nothing. I, I may need that this afternoon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this, this afternoon for these men and all the ministries they represent and their families that they represent. And I pray, Lord, we know that you call men to a certain role in this world. And even though the world has twisted it, convoluted it, and made it what it's not, when we read scripture, you put men back where they ought to be. And you put us on the right track. And Lord, you help us to blaze a trail in this world that has meaning and significance. And you cause us to live for you. And you give us your spirit on this side of eternity to indwell us so we can do the work that you call us to do. And I pray, Lord, for these men. I pray you would strengthen them. You would strengthen them with the word of God. You would make them soldiers in your church. So everything Satan throws at them, they'd be able to hold up the shield of faith and ward off all his flaming missiles and be able to stand strong in these days. Even if they stand alone, and they will, like the Apostle Paul, everyone left me, but the Lord stood. And Lord, that's a good lesson to learn, that we can stand alone with you and, uh, and get along. And so, Lord, today, bless us with hearing. Bless us with the conviction of the Spirit, that what we hear already heard from the Word of God, and what we'll hear now, we will take it to heart. We will examine ourselves by it, and we will, Lord, put it into practice. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the coming of the Holy Spirit to form the church, the many-membered body of Christ, was foreshadowed in Israel under the Feast of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is the executive agent of the Godhead who came to earth to dwell and dwell and build the church and that the Lord Jesus said he would build it. And the Holy Spirit could not be given, as we already read, until Jesus was glorified after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So it is the indwelling work of the Spirit that seems to be the difference between the experience of old Testament saints compared to New Testament saints. In the Old Testament, the Spirit descended on special ones, equipping them and fitting them, but not remaining or indwelling them continually. So Jesus promised his disciples that the Spirit would come and dwell within them, with them, and be in them, and that he would be a comforter to them, and he would abide with them forever right in the Gospel of John that we read this morning in chapter 14, it's going to be the Spirit of Truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him. And He abides with you and will be in you. This another helper that God's given us. Another person the same of the same kind of Jesus Christ will be in us. So, the Holy Spirit... In the life of the church, there are some features of the Spirit in the life of the church, which includes the Holy Spirit 
form the church. As we just read in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost is called the birthday of the church. It brought together the body of Christ. Also, the day the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, it became a new living temple. As Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, having been built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fit together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also, being built together, a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit brings anointing and illumination and direction to the church, as Second Corinthians chapter 1 tells us. Now, He who established us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. So we're all to drink, in Corinthians, of one Spirit, meaning that God is going to be bringing from a diversity of cultures and peoples and tribes and nations and make them one and give them unity. So skin color, culture, society, economics has nothing to do with it. God brings us together, and I'm so thankful He does do that. But also the Holy Spirit works in a special way within the church, in the life of the believer who is part of the church. And the first thing the Spirit of God God does is He gives us the Spirit to be the necessary condition for our salvation. In other words, you don't save yourself. People don't believe the Gospel because they're spiritually dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, Paul said. There's no better word than dead to describe man in his fallen and depraved condition. Ultimately, dead means also to be ignorant of God and to not know God at all. Unregenerate people can no more choose Christ or spiritual truth than a rotting corpse can play basketball or debate philosophy. There is no middle ground between being alive and being dead. Unregenerate people are not just sick or handicapped or impaired. They're dead. So the question is, how can anybody get saved? Well, I'd like you to turn your Bibles uh, to John chapter 6. And just a few verses here, because in the topic you, you deal with a lot of Scripture, so John chapter 6, verse 44. Now, while you're turning there, you find here that the Father is drawing people by this Holy Spirit. This means this special effectual call, this the Spirit irresistibly drawing sinners to Christ. He is not limited in His work of applying salvation by man's will, nor is He limited by... Uh, being dependent on man's cooperation for success, the Holy Spirit graciously causes the elect sinner to cooperate, to believe, to repent, to come freely and willingly to Christ. So we see in John 6.44, there's three important words. One of the first words is no one can come. That word can. This is a negative absolute. The word can refers to ability. In other words, our text is saying no one has the ability to come to Christ. The next word is unless. Unless the Father. And notice in this word, this is an an acceptive clause. uh, And it means that there is a prerequisite or a necessary condition that must be met before anyone has the ability to come. Something has to happen before anyone can come to Christ. It is really saying none of us has the natural ability to come to Christ unless a necessary condition is met, unless God is doing something, unless the Father gives it to them. If you notice in John chapter 6, verse 65, 
It says, and he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So this word, another word in, back in verse 44 is the word draw. So this term really, uh, in the Kittle's New Testament Dictionary of Theology, it says, compelled by irresistible force. So the Holy Spirit draws the sinner by making them willing. And when the Spirit works, He influences the heart so that the person is glad to obey a voice that they once despised. And we really don't know how the Spirit does it. All that we know is He does it. In fact, like Titus says, it's by His mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And what what does the Spirit do? How how is that made visible? Well, when the Holy Spirit enters into the person's heart, He shows the sinner who already has a good opinion of themselves and feels that they can walk into heaven because they have been fairly good people. All of us had that view, to some extent. Nothing worthy of the wrath of God. Then the Holy Spirit exposes the cancer and the and uncovers that person's blackness and defilement and corruption and rebellion, and it brings them to the place where they say, you know, I never thought I was like that. But I see that I am like that. That my sins are against God, and they are great, and they're too many. I can't even remember all of them. Then the Holy Spirit really comes and shows the sinner the cross of Christ. He gives him ears to hear and eyes to see, to look at the man who died to save sinners. And he feels that I am a sinner and I need to be saved. So the Holy Spirit enables the heart to believe and to come to Christ for salvation and eternal life. And when God gives us the grace of a new heart, the first thing that we do is we repent and we we believe. In fact, faith, repentance, belief are gifts. They are actions we perform, yes, but which require the priority of the gift of life. If the drawing influence of the Holy Spirit had not been exercised, There never would have been nor never will be any person who will either either can or will come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does the Spirit do? He brings us from out of death into life. We're born again. And what happens before someone can see the kingdom of God and be born again? What is the prerequisite for entering the kingdom of God? Regeneration is the prerequisite. It is the necessary condition for seeing and entering the kingdom of God. Regeneration precedes faith. In other words, regeneration is a necessary condition before faith. As John 6.63 says, it is the spirit who gives life and the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. If the spirit gives life, if he didn't give life, there would not be life. So the Holy Spirit is not not only affecting our salvation, but he is, he's active in everything we need throughout our earthly journey. Without the Spirit of God, we couldn't get saved. The next thing the Spirit of God does is he baptizes the believer into the body. We already took care of that in the broadcast section. But I, I want to say one thing about that. You don't baptize yourself. You don't save yourself. And the next thing, the Holy Spirit indwells a believer. You don't indwell yourself. Yes, God himself resides within the body of of a believer and a Christian is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the moment we place our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up 
His abode within us. That the Holy God, the Holy God, actually taking up resident within us. Pastor Osara brought that up, and that is an awesome thought. You need to think about that more. So that makes our bodies very special. As temples of the living God, they are sacred. No matter where we go or what we do, the Holy Spirit of God remains with us. He knows what we're thinking. He knows where we are at any moment. He's with us where we take it. That's another awesome thought. And that will change the way you live. When you have that thought every day, it's something we dwell upon. Since he indwells our body, he's involved in every action. That is why we must never allow our bodies to become involved in immorality or any habitual pattern of sin. That's why, take your Bibles and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, and then verse 18. It says, do you not know that your body... I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 1 Corinthians 6.15 Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be, of course. Verse 18, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but... The immoral man sins against his own body, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You have been bought with the price, therefore glorify God in your body. And by the way, anyone who does not have the Holy Spirit is not even a Christian, and they do not belong to Christ. Romans 8 9 tells us, however, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Romans 8 9. So, he saves us. We don't save ourselves. He baptizes us. We don't baptize ourselves with the body of Christ. He indwells us. We don't indwell ourselves. And then he seals us. We don't seal ourselves. First, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, the Holy Spirit, of, of course, seals the believer. It says there, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. And that word there, Araban, is the, a Semitic word that means, a, it's a loan word. It means to make a deposit, to make an installment to put a down payment on something. Actually, in Bible times, it was used in three different ways. One way, seals were used on legal documents to denote authenticity. They're, they're still being used today, like for the same purpose of a county clerk, uh, for instance, has his own seal, and uh, he would certify marriage certificates or, or certain kind of certificates and make them valid. He would authenticate them. And then the second way it was used is seals were used on pieces of property to identify the owner, like branding livestock. And then, of course, it was also used for seals were placed on deeds and titles and other objects uh, to assure secrecy and protection against any tampering or intrusion or unauthorized uh, person's uses of it. So... The sealing with the Holy Spirit assures us as believers that God's covenant of salvation is authentic. That the sealing with the Spirit identifies us as God's special possession. We belong to Him. And if you belong to God, no one could touch you. Not Satan, not no one could touch you. See, the sealing with the Spirit of God is the down payment that all God's promises will come to pass and we will receive our internal, eternal inheritance. It's a promise that here's the down payment, the rest of the payment's coming. And that's why he tells us in Ephesians 
that, listen, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed unto the day of redemption. And of course, in Ephesians 1, he says, having been, having believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. So, sealing is the guarantee that no one, not even the devil, can ever cancel out the redemption that God has provided for us in Christ and that the Lord will see us safely in heaven. Amen? So why is all that important? So you know you're a Christian and that you know you do have eternal security. If you don't know that, you're always wavering, always doubting, always going to square one. The Spirit of God don't want you to stay square one. He wants you to mature. He wants you to mature in Christ. So these foundational truths lead to the more practical things the Holy Spirit is doing in the believer. When we become Christians, the first thing that takes place is that we are justified. I am pronounced just before God indwelt with the Holy Spirit in which He begins the gradual process of sanctification. Change in me and you starts happening. It starts the instant we are justified, but it's not, of course, complete until we enter glory. So from now on till the day we die, we will be sanctified. That the Holy Spirit, what is He doing? He's cleaning us up. He's making changes in our lives, bringing us into conformity to the will of God. And this conformity happens from the inside out. We are being changed from the inside out. This is not just turning over a new leaf. It's not, it's not just putting to death one little habit. And God wants us, really, He wants to see the fruit of what the Spirit of God is doing inside of us. He wants to see it, and He wants us to see it. So the goal of the Christian is righteousness. The goal of the Christian life is righteousness. And we are being sanctified so that we will do what is right. So behavior is at the center of concern when it comes to our change. Behavior shows what is and is not going on in the inside. And the Holy Spirit is inside of us, what? To produce good fruit. The, the fruit of daily connectedness to Christ. The fruit of the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. The fruit of words. What are we saying? Actions. What are we doing? Righteousness. Do we know what we're doing? Fruit of service and good works. Fruit of being concerned for souls all around us. That's what the Spirit of God is doing. And these major aspects of the Spirit of God to change us really comes from re putting repentance on our heart. So He changes our mind on things. And then He convicts us of a sin, of what is wrong and what is evil. And then He convicts us of what is right, good, and pleasing in the sight of God. We're convinced of that by the Spirit of God. But how do we do know to do what's right and pleasing to God if we have no idea what is right and pleasing to God? See, that's where the truth comes in. That's where the Scripture comes in. And the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. So, the Spirit is not only the Holy Spirit, but He is the Spirit in John 1.14 of truth. He is Spirit of truth. Jesus was talking to Pilate and He says, For this I was born, have been born, and have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And so the Spirit of God bears witness about Christ. Not about Himself. And He's bearing witness to the truth. To the Word of God. And so what, how's the Spirit of God working? He's working on our consciousness with truth. Romans 12. Not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind, right? So you may prove what? What is the will of God is? The good, the acceptable, the perfect will of God. And then in Corinthians 14, it says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet 
In evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be mature. So people in our day are despising the instruction of the mind by the word of God. Kind of living in anti-meat age. But Paul did too when he says that I try to feed you with solid food, but you weren't able to receive it. In fact, you're still not able because you're in the flesh. And why are you in the flesh? And here's why they're in the flesh. Because it says in Corinthians, you have jealousy among you and you have strife among you. You haven't taken care of those things, so therefore you're still in the flesh. So the Holy Spirit is making this change in us through the truth, the Word of God. In your mind He's doing it. The Word and the Spirit go together and should not be separated. The Word of God transforms us so we develop deep biblical convictions. And then, and then our consciences will not allow us to live against those convictions. Which comes from a transformed mind. If your mind is not being transformed, then you're not going to be growing at all. He doesn't bypass the mind and go right to the emotions. He, he, he transforms our thinking. So we desire to do right and to live in a pleasing manner before the Lord. So the Holy Spirit is working on our mind. He's working on our mind which will produce a conduct that is going to bear the image of Jesus Christ. He's bringing us men out of the baby nursery baby nursery and out of diapers. So we have self-control and spiritual maturity resulting in progressive transformation, increased Christ-likeness and living for the greater glory of God. What did Paul say in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28? That he his goal was to present everyone mature in Christ. That's a huge job. And that's the job part of the job of a pastor. It never stops. It's relentless. You keep going and keep going and keep going. And this is it. And in New Jersey, you raise somebody up, they mature, and they leave. <laughs> and then God gives you another infant to develop. But that's the nature of the beast. But this is where the understanding of the filling of the Holy Spirit comes in for our daily walk. When we come, when it comes to filling, you and I are commanded and continually responsible to be filled with the Spirit of God. This is something we cooperate with the Spirit to do. We cooperate with the workings of the Holy Spirit. That the work of the Holy Spirit is perhaps the most misunderstood part of his entire ministry aside from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This filling differs somewhat from the indwelling that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the initial act of the Spirit by which at the moment of regeneration we are placed by the Spirit into the body of Christ. And the Holy Spirit then takes up His indwelling within the believer. The filling of the Spirit is the influence or control the Spirit exercises over us when we yield ourselves to Him. It is when we yield to His guidance and teaching and let Him take control over our lives, it is then that we actually experience the filling and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And the secret, really, to the Christian life is being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? Ephesians 5.18, where it says, Do not be drunk with wine, for this is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. The comparison is being under the influence of alcohol or under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That God says, don't be drunk with wine, don't be under the control of alcohol, but be filled with the Spirit, or be under the control of the Holy Spirit. Greek scholar Dr. Kenneth Wiest 
once said being filled with the Holy Spirit is not putting gas in the tank, it is putting a driver at the wheel. Who's driving your life? Who's in control of your life? Who's making the ultimate decisions in your life? If it's just you, you're in big trouble. See, the spirit-controlled Christian is one who has gotten himself, that is his flesh, out from behind the wheel and allows the Spirit of God to get in the driver's seat and run his life. That doesn't mean you sit in the back seat and don't do anything. No, you are cooperating now with the Spirit of God. You're in tune with the Spirit of God and what He is actually teaching you in your life. So the filling of the Spirit, however, is not confined to one experience, but many fillings with the Holy Spirit of God. When you accept the Lord Jesus Christ to be your personal Savior, you receive all the Holy Spirit that you're going to get. But He can get and should get more of you. Hopefully all of you. That's where his goal is, to get all of it. And so the Bible tells us in Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for this is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. It is the past, uh, present, passive imperative. It's, it's the continual action. Keep on being filled with the Spirit. Let the Spirit fill you, not fill you up, but fill you through. Permeate your life, your thinking, everything you say, every action you have, have it guided by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, that means, are there any conditions at all that need to be met to be filled with the Spirit of God? There are, and the list can be longer or shorter, but you must be Christ-centered. That should be one of them, because the Spirit of God is Christ-centered. And you must be first, you definitely must first confess your sin. You have to empty yourself and confess what you know you're doing in your life that doesn't please the Lord. You must then be yielded to Him, giving yourself over to God, like we, it says in uh, Romans 12 that it's my reasonable service of worship to give myself over as a living sacrifice every day. Why? What's the motivation for that? The mercy of God. God didn't have wrath on me. He gave me His compassion. And so because of that, I want to give myself to God to serve Him. And then I don't want to be conformed to the world. I want to be transformed in my mind so I know the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And then I can see myself. I don't look at myself higher than I I ought to or lower, but just the way God gifted me and just the way that God blessed me and gave me the circumstances He gave me, and then go out and serve people with love and zeal. That's what I'm supposed to do. So there must be yieldness. Also, we must desire to see for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We must be in the Word of God. You cannot divorce being filled with the Spirit of God from being Word-filled. Colossians talks about being Word-filled. Ephesians talks about being Spirit-filled. And they have the same results. The fullness of the Holy Spirit is not like salvation. It is not permanent where salvation is. It depends on our fellowship and walk with the Lord. So what are the results of being filled with the Holy Spirit of God? There there are definite results that you may actually see of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. However, the results of filling may not be what you think or what you have heard. Because if you heard that the filling of the Holy Spirit results in the speaking in tongues, seeing visions, having dreams, having feelings of euphoria, where someone loses their self-consciousness and self-control, where it manifests itself in swooning and chanting and clapping and barking and laughing and stamping their feet, stuff like that, if you have heard these are the things that result in being filled with the Holy Spirit, you would have missed the details of what scriptures record about the results of being filled with the Holy Spirit. So where will the results of filling of the Holy Spirit be revealed in your life? 
Well, it's going to be revealed in your conduct. That's where it's going to be revealed. One of the first things that's going to be revealed, uh, Peter wrote in his epistle, be like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That God will give us the mind of Christ. The mind, a mind that is discerning. A mind that is a servant. We will become obedient. We will become overwhelmingly thankful. We'll separate ourselves from the things, the past sins and the things of the world. And we will be fishers of men, lovers of people. That's where it will be revealed in our conduct. Our conduct, but it also will be revealed in our character. That will be revealed in our appearance. I don't mean what you're wearing today. I mean we dress as kingdom kids. We are putting off sin-staying garments and putting on new clean clothing all the time. That the new self is the born-again self. It is the new creature in Christ. And only the Christian, only the Christian, has the capacity to consider themselves dead to sin and alive to God with the ability now to will and will to serve and please God. Loving God and loving God's Son includes hating sin with the desire to pursue righteousness. So that means salvation is a matter of comprehensive transformation. It is a matter of progress in Christ's likeness. That's where I see the Spirit of God filling me. When I see progress, I'm not the man I used to be even last year. I'm different. I'm different because the Spirit of God is working on me and I'm cooperating with Him. Not perfectly, but that's the progress of my life. And we all have to see that. We all have to see that. Pastors, you've got to see that. If you're pastoring here, you have to see that. Well, you know why? You might as well close up, close up shop. When we, when we put on new clothes, we won't want to take them off because we will begin to experience the fullness of the Christian life. And what is the fullness of the Christian life? To be like Christ. That's where it's all heading. In fact, take your Bibles for a moment. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. I just want to just share something with you. In Colossians chapter 3, Verse 5 through 7. I'm just going to give you a list on what's there. In Colossians chapter 3, uh, the Apostle presents three lists in, in this section of Scripture from verse 5 to verse number 14, Colossians 3. And these lists expose sin, uh, attitudes of sin, behavior, and speech. And these lists actually help us evaluate our progress in spiritual maturity in Christ's likeness. List number one, Colossians 3, verse 5 through 7. Here's the, the sins of sexual attitude and behavior, shameful desires, sexual sin, impurity, lust, greed, idolatry. What do we do with those? It says in the text, we are to put these to death. These are, the dis these are destructive because these destroy relationships. And they destroy churches. A second list, in chapter 3, verse 8 through 9, these are the sins of speech. Anger, malicious behavior, slander, dirty language, lying. We are to rid ourselves of these because these are relationship breakers, unity killers, and, and peace crushers. And then he gives another list in chapter 3, verse 12 through 14, and what does he say to this list? He says, put these on. Mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, love. Put these on. Why are we put these on? Because these keep the unity. They build relationships. They lead to progress in spiritual maturity and Christ-likeness and spiritual fulfillment. Of course, he's talking about putting on clothing in this chapter. And of course, the clothing is not physical clothing, it's spiritual clothing. The clothing 
that you and me are to put on are the same clothing Christ wore when he walked this earth. So believers can no longer operate on the basis of sinful desires and passions. These are all past. That's all past tense. The Apostle Peter also wrote, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against your soul. The assumption in that verse here is that a believer can actually carry out what the Scripture is urging them to do. And that is to abstain from fleshly lust. That if I have the Spirit of God, I can say, no, I'm not going there in my mind. I'm not going there in my mind. I'm going to get rid of everything that really leads me down that path and I'm going to put a stop to it. Why? Because I want to be filled with the Spirit. Because I want God's way in my life. That's why I do it. And is that a fight? Is that a battle? The Christian life is impossible. There's no way we're going to do these things unless we have the Holy Spirit. See, the Spirit is the renewed power of the new man. I say, walk in the Spirit and you will what? Won't, what won't you do? You, if you walk in the Spirit, you will, will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Even the desire of the flesh is put to death. So as a Christian, we have a new nature and a remaining old one. In other words, the new nature does not alienate the flesh. The Christian Christians have to struggle against the flesh until they enter glory. So this is where, this is warfare between the new man, the spiritual man, and the old man, the flesh. However, the war is not a war between our souls and our bodies because our physical body is not inherently evil. We have to have a counter-warfare. That's what's necessary against the inner rebel that's still there. You know that voice that says, you don't need to do that. You can go there. It's not a big deal. Go ahead and enjoy yourself a little bit. And be sure of this, that the inward sinful desires continually wage spiritual battle against the spiritual soul of the believer. So then the rebel voice must be tuned down. And the Spirit's voice must get louder and louder and louder. The Spirit's voice spoken through the Word of God needs to become consistently stronger so it drowns out the voice of the desires of the flesh. So the flesh must be weakened, as R.C. Sproul said, and the Spirit must be strengthened. But there's another thing, the Spirit of God, the fullness of the Spirit of God is revealed in our relationships. Our relationships. As a result of being word-filled and being controlled by the Spirit, it leads us to submitting. The supreme condition in the filling of the Holy Spirit is surrender. Submission to Christ and the knowing of doing of the will of God. See, submission to one another would imply that one is willing to submit to those who have authority, whether in the home or in the church or in society. In Ephesians, it talks about the structure of marriage, wives and husbands, families and children, or children and parents, and then servants and masters. Same thing in Colossians, same thing. So in these passages, really, there's two groups of people. There, there are those in subordination, which will be the wife, the children, and the slaves, and there are those that are in authority. And who's in authority? The fathers. The husbands. The masters. So the biblical role of husband and wife have been designed by God to produce unity and order in the home and in the church. If both the wife and the husband are dressing their part, that is, they're putting off sin and relationship killers actually ridding themselves of them 
and replacing them with righteousness, by putting on the new self, they will be standing on the foundation of gospel grace in which the commands of God will be their pleasure. Because why? They know they're chosen. They know they're called to holiness. They know they're loved by God. They know it. And so if the wife understands her role that God has designed her for, she will willingly submit to her husband. But husbands, what is your responsibility in your submission to the commands given by the Holy Spirit in this area? Well, again, look at Colossians chapter 3, verse number 19. The Holy Spirit gives us a positive command. You know what the positive command is? Husbands, love your wives. Now, I just I have a question for you. Is that easy to do? Oh, wait a minute. You just got married. Maybe. But get into it for a while. And husbands, you're going to keep looking at this passage of Scripture. And you're going to be asking, do I really love my wife? Like Christ's love. A uniquely Christian love is based on Christ's love. It's different than what everybody else is saying. Christ's love is, is an unconditional love. He demonstrates his love even when we're sinners. It, it's a love that is volitional. He chooses to love us. Even when we do what is not right and good. It's an intense love. The scripture says, having loved his own who were with him in the world, he loved them to the end. It's an unending love who shall separate, be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's an unselfish love. He emptied himself, the kenosis passage, and took on himself as a, a form of a bondservant. For what? So he can die in our place as a man. It's a purposeful love. It's a sacrificial love. He gave himself for us. It's a manifested love. That Christ manifests his love in words and deeds. He protects us. He prays for us. He guards us. He strengthens us. He defends us. He teaches us. He comforts us. He chastens us. He equips us. Equips us. He empathizes with us and provides all our needs. This then is the standard by which the husband is to judge his relationship with his wife. So no husband, of course, can fully love his wife in that way, to that degree, to that extent. But that's the goal toward which every husband is to press. That is the model that we are to follow. Men, we have to model Holy Spirit male leadership in the home. And that includes loving our wives that way. And we mustn't forget that our wives have been giving to us as helpers. And so when we love her, she helps us. She becomes invaluable to us. Not only does she bring the benefit of a female perspective, but she balances us. She improves us in our leadership and restrains some of our excess. Honey, do you think you ought to be doing that? She restrains some of the excesses of our wannabe, we want all wannabe macho men. Our wives help, helps us to restrain that thing. She's a gift to us. And so what's the negative command the Holy Spirit gives us in this passage, Colossians 3.19? Right? This, before I look at it, there's a command here in our passage given to the husband that if he violates this imperative, he will put a kibosh on any unity and peace he has gained and enjoyed in his home. He will be in disobedience to God's clear command to love his wife because it is not he is not loving his wife as a prized vessel. His prayer life is hindered, as Peter says. She, she is a, a fellow heir to the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. So what's the command the husband is not to do? The husband, 
Husbands, do not be embittered against them. Now, I, I, when I was look, looking at this passage of Scripture, I was saying, hmm, how, why does the Word of God pick out this one? Because it really, the verse speaks of, of friction caused by impatience, perpetual irritations, fault finding. It really means to make bitter. It's used in Revelations to, to mean uh, waters that become undrinkable because they're bitter. It means to be angry, to become resentful. And it's a sense of having hostile feelings towards your wife. Meaning that his bitterness will be like bitter water that goes into the stomach and causes a violent reaction. As bitter water becomes undrinkable, his life will become a sour life of unbearable if he's a Christian. And he will walk off the path of transformation and he will quench the Holy Spirit. That's not where we want to be as men. Bitterness does reflect the general sense of wickedness and a refusal to actually obey God. Even Ephesians puts bitterness at the top of the list. Every form of malice, it says, for all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So the habitual attitude of bitterness that some may show to their wives will reflect the rejection of that love Christ has for His people. In other words, the husband is ignoring the teaching of the Holy Spirit if he is embittered against his wife. And like I said uh, on Sunday, that, that can show up as silence. Spending a lot of time at work because you don't want to come home. Or just being rough with her, harsh with her, with your words and your attitude. See, if men, if we're doing that, we are we're quenching God's spirit, and that's what we do not want. We want to put on back on the old stinky, stained garments. Actually, the Greek construction in our text when. A present imperative coupled with a negative is, is pointing to a habitual action. And what is that habitual action the husband is continually to avoid? Husbands, you are forbidden to become bitter with your wives. It's that strong. So as husbands submit themselves to the Lord as their head, they will take the right attitude toward their wives. And if the man is living under the Lordship of Christ, the husband will submit to the Holy Spirit in a manner that is appropriate for those who are in the Lord. And the only solution to get rid of such wickedness of resentment towards your wife is to get back on the path of transformation and being controlled by the Spirit of God so you will start acting again like Christ would. And how would Christ act in the Ephesian passage of Scripture? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So that means as a transformed husband, living under the Lordship of Christ and controlled by the Holy Spirit, he will be willing to submit to God's commands. He will be arranging his life according to how God has arranged it so he can make progress in spiritual transformation to be the husband and leader that God made him to be because why? It is important for me to be growing and being transformed and be walking in the Spirit. But saying all that, there's some offenses that we can commit 
as believers against the Holy Spirit. And you, you heard of them already. The first one is the grieving of the Holy Spirit. You can grieve Him. And, and what, you know, because remember, the Holy Spirit is a person, so a person can be grieved. And grieving, the sin of grieving the Holy Spirit is really the sin of making Him sad. Making the Holy Spirit sorrowful. That the believer grieves the Holy Spirit by allowing sin to remain. And by resisting the conviction of the Holy Spirit, he also grieves the Holy Spirit by resisting the call of the Spirit. There's a distinction. I want to make a distinction between how one grieves the Holy Spirit and how he is quenched. Because those are the two major things in Scripture. Either you grieve the Spirit or you quench the Spirit. Now a husband who's treating his wife harshly is going to quench the Spirit. But of course the Spirit at the same time is grief. And the distinction is this, to simplify it, sins of commission grieves the Holy Spirit. Sins of omission quench the Holy Spirit. So, one grieves the Spirit by doing what the Spirit teaches him not to do. And one quenches the Spirit when the person does not respond to what the Spirit urges him to do. I can say it in another way. Grieving is disobedience to the Word of God. Quenching is disobedience to the Spirit's urging or prompting or some say wooing of the Spirit. Where we know the Spirit is speaking to us and we're just not responding. We know what the Word of God says and we're just not doing it. Now, again, there's lists in Scripture. If you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 to 22, you find in that list, it's talking about quenching the Spirit. But in that passage of Scripture, it says this. This is how it listed. It says there. Some, this is a, these are like rapid machine gun fire text in Scripture. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything, give thanks, because this is the will of God. Now, I don't know about you, but if you notice the words, always, without ceasing, everything... That's impossible. And then it says this, don't quench the Spirit. And then right after that it says, do not despise preaching, hold fast to what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. So when a person is quenching the Holy Spirit, they are not acting as sons of light. 1 Thessalonians 5.5 5. To quench the Holy Spirit is by it's, it's, it's by not doing what you have been taught to do. So in other words, what are you taught to do? You're taught to be rejoicing. You're taught to pray without ceasing. You're taught to give thanks to God because it's the will of God. When I'm not doing those things, I'm quenching God's Spirit. I'm acting other than a son of light. And then the, the list in Ephesians... Don't be angry, don't lie, don't steal, no unwholesome speech, put away all maliciousness. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And why are they grieving the Spirit of God? Because they're not acting like God. They're not, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1, they're not imitating God. So, to grieve the Spirit, you grieve the Spirit by doing what you have been taught not to do. So one is omission, one is commission. And you know that quenching the Spirit of God, uh, you know, it, it's an admonition that's violated way too much. That Christians and churches wonder why their lives are empty and dry. And I know this by experience. I know when it is to be dry and empty. And I hate it. 
I don't like these. But when I'm there, you know what I have to do? I have to come back and I have to say, where did I quench the Spirit? By not doing what He taught me to do. And where have I grieved the Spirit? By doing what I have been taught not to do. And then look where those things are and then come to the Lord and confess it. The practical definition of the term quench could mean also to quelch, to stifle. And I think more specifically, to put a stop to an urge. To quench, to quench one's thirst is a common expression, right? What happens when you quench your thirst? You stop the urge. You want to drink something, right? Until you get that urge again. That's a common expression. So, when you are quenching the Spirit, you're putting a stop to an urge the Spirit of God is doing in your life. And that's precisely what we do when we quench the Holy Spirit. The, the person puts a stop to an urge the Holy Spirit plants within him. So the Holy Spirit is that presence in the believer in which He gives power within that person, within that believer, in the context of the corporate body to enable him to overcome evil, to overcome personal sin, to understand and receive the Word of God, and to produce fruit of the Spirit and character within that person's life. So the the passage in Thessalonians is actually imploring us to do what is willed and desired by God. It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this for this is God's will for you. Actually, the word will in the, the Greek could be translated, this is God's wish for you. This is what He wants for you. Because it's not only more beneficial for you to do these things, it's also helpful for you being an example to your wife. And the Colossian passage of Scripture, the next one would have been your children. How are you living before then? See, that's where you can see the filling fullness of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. That's where you're going to see it. And that's where you look in your life. So, so we actually quench the Spirit whenever His presence is ignored. Whenever his promptings and convictions are suppressed, his teaching is rejected and the fire in, in our heart is dampened by sin. See, we drench the Spirit's influence in our lives by unspiritual attitudes, criticisms, and bad actions. And we drown the Spirit's power through a toleration of sin, possibly immorality, in our life. And what are the results of grieving? Loss of joy. Loss of awareness of God's presence. Loss of certainty. Loss of peace. You become spiritually blind. And even kind of spiritually numb. We lose comfort. And a lot of doubt and fear comes back into our life. So you men don't want to extinguish the fire of spiritual fervor and power in your life, do you? I don't. I don't want that to happen. But I have to be diligent. You have to be diligent. You and me can't afford to lose spiritual power and joy. We need God's help in this. And so, men, I believe today you are now equipped and armed so that on any given day you can know if you made progress in being controlled by the Spirit and walking the Spirit. That's no longer a mystery to us. And when it becomes, when the mystery is removed, now we're more responsible. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, for your presence in our heart and life by your spirit dwelling us. 
And Lord, we do want you to take the word spoken this morning and now, and Lord, really drive it home to our hearts so that we may meditate upon it and that we may be honest in our examination of ourselves, that we may be honest in how it's really going with ourselves and our wives, ourselves and our children, ourselves and our church people. And Lord, that we would be humble enough to repent of our sin because we know when the Spirit of God is grieved and quenched and we're real, real believers, the next thing is God's chastisement. He removes the sense of His presence to bring whatever He needs to bring into our life to get us back on track. So we want to thank You, Lord. We need the power of God's Spirit every day. And surely, Lord, we don't want to grieve Him. We don't want to quench Him. We want to be a vessel of honor in Your hand to be used in glory to Your great name. I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you.